1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me today. I hope you're here to revel in wrong think because that's kind of what we do. It's our thing. And I, I fear that uh, we're, we're approaching a point in time where wrong think is actually going to carry some weight. I, uh, I mentioned this in the other hour. That thing, uh, that, that slogan was really kind of a tongue in cheek. Ha ha, you know, <laughs> I'm engaging in wrong think kind of thing. It was, it was much more tongue in cheek. And as we move forward, I'm telling you, day by day, I'm looking at things and going, holy cow, they really are coming after wrong think. By they, well, that's pretty vague, right? I'm going to explain a little bit more here in just a few moments. One of the biggest examples that I can point to that indicates that there are some people, I don't know how big of a percentage I know there are, uh, there are a lot of folks within the political class because we see this incredible political war taking place. Uh, I shouldn't say it, fighting for power. It's, it's a battle over who will wield the power. So there are political factions. There's a lot of power at stake and you know, they really are They're They're They are at war with each other, which gang is going to win. I know that sounds harsh, but I think St. Augustine would agree with me on this. I think he described, you know, the, the way that uh, the world's biggest empires and the way that's biggest gangs act are really pretty much interchangeable. Violence is how they get things done. There's intrigue, there's deception and so forth. We just never thought it would happen here. But here we find ourselves uh, very deeply divided. Um, and, and I think this is probably the disturbing part to me. Not just like, oh, you know, half the population thinks the other half is uh, full of uh, beans, bologna, and horseflies. You know, I mean, it's it's not just, well, we think they're full of it and, and we're not. It goes way deeper. I mean, like, disturbingly deep. Like, if you don't hate them with the same intensity that we hate them, then you are our enemy, too. Doesn't that sound like a caricature? I mean, doesn't that... That sounds like like someone from Central Casting. Send me a villain. I need somebody, you know, really unlikable. uh, Absolutely, you know, the antagonist. But that's what it looks like. And that came out loud and clear in an interview that was conducted by undercover journalists at uh, Project Veritas. This was a PBS attorney named Michael Beller. I believe he was like the chief counsel for PBS. And he made the suggestion, and I, look, this, it's just words, okay, so it's not like I think he should be thrown in jail, but I just, listen to what he suggests. When he thought he was among friends, or at least like-minded individuals, Michael Beller loosened up and advanced the need for re-education camps, or the more friendly-sounding enlightenment camps for the children of Donald Trump supporters arguing that they will be raising a generation of intolerant, horrible people, horrible kids. Now, I found this excellent article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. And she, uh, she talks about this. You know, I mean, look, she's not saying the sky is falling down because this one guy, this one lawyer for PBS, offered this opinion in, you know, in private conversation with friends. But does it not give you just a little bit of pause to to realize there are people out there who think that is a perfectly reasonable approach to how to disagree with others. We'll take their children from them under the Department of Homeland Security. And, uh, you know, I think this is how he put it. He says, even if Biden wins, we go for all the Republican voters and Homeland Security will take their children away. What do you think about that? And we'll put them, meaning the Trump supporters, children into reeducation camps. I mean, look, he's only trying to prevent people from raising intolerant, horrible, horrible kids. Can you name one instance for me, historically, where someone has kidnapped the children, taken them away and brainwashed them where that ever went wrong? Oh, my, that's quite a list. Actually, it's, it's been done. But that's the kind of thing you hear from from totalitarian regimes. And I mean, legit totalitarian regimes. Gosh, far be it for me to, to try to suggest something that's going to take more of your precious time. But I'm going to ask you a question today. We're going to actually explore this a little bit further in the show. How serious are you about actually knowing what you know? In other words, owning your worldview to the point that if someone said, well, tell me what you think about this. You'd feel okay with telling them where you stand because you've actually thought it through. Maybe not so much a matter of I've got to persuade them to to my point of view, but you can defend your point of view. You know what you stand for. You got to read stuff. You've got to you got to be willing to study history. You've got to be willing to study human nature. And absolutely learn that there are some things that just don't change. And when people start, I mean, like I'm going to recommend a book to you. OK, the book is called Red Scarf Girl. I wish I could remember the the author's name off the top of my head. It's been probably 10 years since I read this book. It is. A, it, it's the memoirs of a young girl who grew up during China's uh, Red Scarf Revolution. OK, she was she was part of the Cultural Revolution. And it's just an observation, you know, OK, this is from one person who lived under communism. But, you know, the struggle sessions or people who were believed to be deviating from the party orthodoxy, from, you know, from what Chairman Mao wanted. They were taken out and they were publicly humiliated, forced to confess their sins. Look up the term struggle session. You probably actually been invited to a few in the last couple of weeks. If if you are any kind of a person who identifies as conservative or if you were if you were wearing a MAGA hat, anybody wearing those, anybody seeing those around anymore? It's kind of sad. I mean, that brand always did attract some of the wrong kind of attention. It was like an invitation. Hey, come take this from me. Hey, come fight me. Now it's kind of radioactive. But again, it's one thing to disagree and it's another thing to to actually spell out, you know, this is what I would I would think we need to do. Now, Annie Holmquist actually takes this, I think, in a very productive direction. This is not just to scare you. and oh, my gosh, they want to take the kids. But she asks a deeper question, and I I think, given the uncertainty of the times that we live in, how much stuff has changed in the space of the last few weeks that you thought you would never see those kind of changes? Okay, so that's my point, is stuff can change radically and quickly, a lot faster than we expect. So what would you do if your children... Face the possibility. I know this is purely hypothetically. We're just suggesting that maybe someone out there somewhere might actually, you know, hold to this kind of thinking. But what if somebody said, let's round up their kids, take the kids away and put them into these enlightenment camps, these reeducation camps to teach them how to be good people. How would you prepare your kid? I got to say some of the best books that I've ever read in my life come from people who have lived through such experiences. Two that come to mind immediately are Viktor Frankl and uh, Corey Tenboom. Those were people who lived through times of unthinkable upheaval and division. I mean some of the some of the worst ugliest division that humanity has ever seen. You know, where people can just be Treated like less than human exterminated. I guess what I'm getting at is if you had to if you had to prepare yourself for a future where you were maybe not even in camps. OK, let's let's bring it back a little bit and just say, what if you were just part of a, a group or a caste that was ostracized, the untouchables, the deplorables, <laughs> you know, you you were on the fringes of society. Most likely unable to, you know, transact, to to purchase freely. I mean, you see that coming, don't you? Better have an alternate way to uh, engage in commerce because you want to work within the system, you're going to have to be a part of the system. All right. I'm going to run out of time before before I have a chance to share some of Annie's recommendations, but I'm going to include a link to her article preparing your kids for the reeducation camps. Now, no, she is not saying that the sky is falling down, but she's offering some pretty thoughtful information here as to what kind of conversation would you have if, if the craziness that has happened elsewhere was happening around you and around your family? I don't, think that, I don't think of that as, you know, fearful fantasizing. I think of it more as gaming out how would we make the best of a bad situation. And I don't think there's anything wrong or, you know, particularly paranoid in doing that. So there's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You'll also find contact information for my sponsors, including Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and Altabank. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. I want to share this article with you from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Don't let the title throw you preparing your kids for the re-education camps. Now, she's not saying it's coming, folks, it's coming. But uh, she does point out that when when you see a, a very powerful PBS attorney like Michael Beller expressing views like this, doesn't it give you just a little chill to realize how mainstream some of these kind of beliefs may have become? I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that uh, no longer surprises me. Just because we've seen how, how utterly volatile things are. Now, Annie points out that uh, there's a reason you see little kids walking through the airport or the state fair wearing leashes disguised as monkey backpacks. And she says the reason for that is because every parent's worst fear is losing their child. But she says that nightmare increases tenfold. When the loss is inflicted upon parents via so-called authority figures, such as child protective services or other agencies with allegedly good intentions, so when you place that reality up against, you know, the prospect of is is the thinking that this attorney, uh, Beller, you know, is 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 his thinking, is it really something? Do, do people comfortably go there? Now, thankfully, I think this is this is kind of a a positive development. Um, Beller, despite saying, you know, look, even if Biden wins, we go for all the Republican voters, Homeland Security takes their children away. What do you think about that? We'll put those children into re-education camps. Shortly after the video surfaced, Project Veritas Veritas released it just within the last couple of days. PBS released an official response saying Beller no longer works for PBS. And that his uh, comments were not in line with those of the organization. So they're distancing themselves from him, and and understandably. And he says, yet while it seems unfathomable that Beller or anyone else, liberal, conservative, or otherwise, could even entertain the idea of forcibly extracting millions of children from their homes just because the political ideologies of their parents are different. She says that uh, actually that's that's, uh, an idea that's been advanced before by a very prominent historical figure, Karl Marx. Writing in the Communist Manifesto, Marx noted the destruction of the family, particularly the separation of children and parents, was a main goal of communism. Abolition of the family, Marx prescribed, noting that even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of the communists. I don't blame him. I mean, that's how much closer than home can you hit than family? Now, Annie Holmquist says... This was the goal, though, for Marx believed the traditional family was built on capital, on private gain, and would vanish with the vanishing of capital. But listen to this next quote. The father of communism takes direct aim at the parent-child relationship. In his next words, do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this crime, we plead guilty. That's kind of, that's almost more disquieting than what the PBS lawyer was saying. Marx embraces the idea of destroying the most hallowed of relations, replacing the education of children in the home with a social form of the same, noting how communists seek seek to co-opt schools as a means of intervention and indoctrination toward their way of thinking. Now, Annie Holmquist asks the question, is such a plan resurfacing under those who advance a new totalitarian government? Sure, Beller no longer works for PBS, but seeing as he flippantly passes off his, as flippantly as he passes off his uh, opinions, it's hard to imagine he thinks his views are not socially acceptable. Thus, those who will not submit willingly to the new woke totalitarian way of thinking must be made to conform to the mold, and if not themselves, then most certainly their children. And she asks, so what do we do? Do we sit back? Do we wait for the inevitable? Do we fight to the death to keep our children and train them in our beliefs and values? Now she says most of us would surely do the latter. But what if even that fails? How do we prepare our children for the time when God forbid, they may be forcibly separated from us and indoctrinated with ideologies that we can't and won't accept? She says two answers to that question are offered in the concluding paragraphs of W. Cleon Skousen's 1958 book, The Naked Communist. This is going to thrill some people, just the fact that I'm sharing some Skousen, but hear what he has to say here. Skousen says that the challenge to our youth today is a war of ideologies, then it is time for us to take the offensive. We should not sit back and wait for our boys and girls to be indoctrinated with materialistic dogma and thereby make themselves vulnerable to a communist conversion when they are approached by, agents, by the agents of force and fear who come from across the sea. For two generations, an important phase of American life has been disintegrating. As parents and teachers, we need to recognize that if this pillar of our culture collapses, our own children will be the casualties. This disintegration must stop. Of course, we must do more than merely teach correct principles. Certainly, we must practice them. He says, I therefore close with the words of Francis Bacon, who said, it is not what you eat, but what you digest that makes you strong. It is not what you earn, but what you save that makes you rich. It is not what you preach, but what you practice that makes you a Christian. Teach and do simple words, but incredibly challenging to put into practice. Annie Holmquist says the challenge is worth it, however, so teach your children history. Teach them to value things like truth, family, and morality. Take them to church. Instill scriptural principles in their hearts. But just don't impress such things upon them. Personally adopting these practices and modeling them for your children will go much further in helping them stand strong in the possible event that one day they may be brought under the influence of those whose values are in direct opposition to yours. I don't know. I like what she's saying here. And it and it resonates with me. And it just it makes me think that there you you could liken you could liken the influence that you have to, to almost to like a bank in the sense that uh, um, when people come together, when they start banking their influence together and really incredible things happen. And I think about this in terms of what Annie Holmquist is saying. I mean, if you consider yourself a decent person, I'm not going to ask you to make the leap. Well, yes, I'm a great person. <laughs> Let me pat myself on the back just to, just to show you. But if you consider yourself a decent person, then you know it takes effort just to live as a decent person. If you continually want to take the path of least resistance, it's pretty easy to be an OK person or, you know, a person that is maybe a little hinky or you can just choose to be a complete bad person. But to be a really good person takes effort. Much more effort than simply, you know, posting something on social media. I'm against this bad thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what a lot of us do, myself included, and feel accomplished. Well, I guess I've settled the matter for now. But no, you want to make a difference. You got to live with integrity. Someone in your life taught you. That it was worth living with integrity. Someone taught you it was worth whatever effort, whatever extra, you know, horsepower is required to be a decent person. Especially in times where that becomes kind of a rare thing because you kind of stand out. You might invite some abuse or at least some unwanted attention. But if you look around you, and I mean, really look at the people in your life who influenced you, who helped you become a better version of yourself than you were yesterday. That's the kind of person you and I are being called upon to be right now. And it certainly starts with your children. I think it extends to uh, to anybody within your circle of influence. The more people who live their lives as if there is, um, as if character mattered, as if, as if that, that, uh, that personal integrity and strength of character was worth paying the price for. The people who do that have the ability to somehow um, inspire it in others, rather than you know scold them, <laughs> demand that they change, and 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 become better people. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own life. I certainly, I certainly can look and I can I could probably point to a lot of different people and say I'm a better person because I rubbed shoulders with this person. So the goal here is. You and I need to be that person. It's a process, okay? We never actually arrive, but I think that's a process worth undergoing. What do you think?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I will open up the phone lines here in a few minutes. Uh, Give me just a couple minutes. There's a couple of things I want to get through. One was I wanted to share what I think may be one of the most reasonable takes on uh, this whole, well, you know, social media is all privately owned companies, so they can do whatever they want, you know. I see a lot of libertarians kind of getting roasted with that. Well, you know, these are private companies. You can't complain. You said private companies should be able to do whatever they want. Okay, so the, uh, the amazing Phil Magnus is the one who, uh, who stated this. Here's the naive take. Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, YouTube are private companies and can censor whoever they want. So stop complaining. That's the naive take. Here's the realistic take. Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, YouTube are private companies and can legally censor whoever they want on their platforms and products. But they are also currently under intense and publicly declared pressure from elected officials to engage in censorship for political reasons on a wide range of issues and topics. They are also responsive to those political pressures both to curry favor with government officials who are currently calling on them to censor and to reduce future threats of punitive regulation from those same officials in the event that they do not censor. Now, I'm just going to stop for a minute. Did you know this? Did you realize? I mean, it's... Look, I love to hate on big tech as much as anybody, but I can see... I clearly see what uh, what Phil is pointing out here. I mean, I'm, I'm mad at them for going along with it, but now... I can understand a little bit better. They're under pressure. And Phil says, if you value free speech, you should be genuinely alarmed at the carrot and stick style rent seeking relationship that's emerged between big tech and government officials who want big tech to engage in political censorship on their behalf. I think that's a really solid take. I can't remember if I think I shared this, uh, I think I may have shared this on my uh my Facebook link. I don't take any social media for granted anymore because I'm really not sure who's even active. Somehow I've managed to fly under the radar and apparently I'm I'm considered harmless enough uh, Facebook has has largely just left me alone, but anyway. I think it's a good distinction. I know people are having this discussion, so now you know. Yeah, private companies can do this, but are they simply doing this because there really is, you know, consumer pressure or is it coming from somewhere else? I think we know the answer. All right. Here's another thing that we've seen uh, come up here in the, in the days following the unrest at the nation's capital last week. I still hesitate to call it a riot, but it's only because I have really unreasonable expectation, expectations that is of what uh, constitutes a full-blown riot. And I mean, I I had a lot of opportunity to research this over the summer via any number of riots that were actually going on, you know, anywhere in America. A lot of good case studies, if you get my drift. But here's the part that, that I find truly alarming and amazing. There is no doubt that there were Trump supporters among those who entered the U.S. Capitol without official permission. Now, I don't know how much of the footage you have seen, and I don't, you know, I'm not asking you, believe me, because I saw all this. I've seen some footage that raises some pretty interesting questions, like Capitol Police moving barricades aside, like in one place, waving people through an open door into the building. I've seen that with my own eyes. But I still couldn't tell you, you know, what was the extent? The people who came up there to gain access to that building, you know, this is just a layman's opinion here, but they look pretty dang squared away. Clearly, something they'd practiced before. I don't know. Maybe it was a dry run for something you know that they're they're looking to do. Maybe all that paranoia that we're seeing right now in Washington D.C. is uh, is justified. I kind of doubt it. They they tend to to play the victim really hard. They they would make great soccer players in the sense that boy, once once they get uh, once they get bumped, you know they they'll put on the drama uh, in a big way. But I still believe that that calling it a riot really overstates what happened there. And and uh, anyway, here's some of the fallout. People who were there at the Capitol. And there were a lot of people there. Hundreds of thousands of people. They were there primarily because they believed that uh, the November election had been stolen. And they were attempting to block Congress's certification. I don't know if they were trying to block it, but they were trying to register their displeasure with Congress And say that, uh, you know, they didn't want to see this, this result certified without a thorough investigation. I know how absolutely counter to the narrative this is. But they don't feel like they had any kind of a fair hearing. Everybody just assured them, you know, everything's good. It's all on the up and up. You know, and keep in mind, these are the same people who have howled nonstop for four years about how evil Trump is, how he has to be removed. He has to go somehow. And then suddenly, boom, just like that. All that bias is gone and they are suddenly, no, no, we were just, we're the most fair, even handed, above board people you'd ever, you know, want to deal with. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just not that naive. But the, the fact of the matter remains. Somebody, somebody who knew what they were doing and was setting out to cause mischief definitely broke their way into the Capitol, encouraged others to come in with them. The vast majority of people had nothing to do with this, but... Oh, my goodness, the fallout, you know, the the guilt by association. It's kind of sad. Because a lot of those people legitimately, I think, were there for the right reason, whether you agree with their, you know, their stance on the election or not. I mean, what, what better way to to register that uh, this is not something that everybody's just going to say, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I guess it's exactly like the news tells me. They'd tell me if something was wrong, wouldn't they? I mean, they have to. It's their job. But now the FBI is placing people who were there at the Capitol on no-fly lists. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, because, I mean, it, it, look, maybe maybe some of these people, the cell phone tracking data, the location data, I posted an article on Facebook earlier today, both on my own page as well as on uh, the Brian Hyde show page. It's very chilling when you realize that uh, you are the easiest thing in the world to follow around, to know where you've been, who you've talked to, how long you stayed there and where you are right this minute. When someone tells you, hey, you're not alone, man, you better believe you're not. Yep, the national uh, the national security apparatus is keeping tabs on you and this is how they're finding a lot of the people who were there. Now, when we come back from the break here in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk a little bit about no-fly lists. I know most of us think that's a that is no big deal. And it's easy for us to think that as long as you're not the one who's on a no-fly list. I've had a couple of uh, interactions with I I've, I've always somehow I've always been able to to fly I don't think I would want to do it now, not based on on what I've seen and how airlines are treating customers, you know, just over over the covid fears. I, I don't think I want to fly again, but I've never been on a no fly list. But I know people who have been on no fly list unjustly. And it really does have a tendency to to relegate you to a kind of second class citizenship. They don't have to give a reason. Why am I on this no-fly list? We don't know. How can I get off the list? We don't know. Someone just names you, puts you on the list. You don't have to be convicted of anything. You don't even have to be formally accused of anything, and you can be denied the ability to uh, freely move about. Now, again, I can see some enterprising person saying, Well, now, Brian, are those airlines private or are they publicly owned? And, and, and again, I'm going to hearken back to what Phil Magnus pointed out. They are privately owned entities, but they're deeply in bed with government, which means they dance to the tune that the government calls via regulation. I mean, it's it's tempting. I totally understand. People who see their, their political opponents and see them inconvenienced, they got to think that's pretty great. Had a chance to visit with Ammon Bundy. Uh, this would have been back in uh, spring of 2019. Maybe it was 2018. We were in Modesto, California. Ammon was going to fly in. He was going to speak at an event. I mean, you know, the the rabid environmentalists were out there uh, picketing and trying to shut it down. It was it was it was a uh, it was a scene. But Ammon ended up having to drive like, I don't know how many hours, 12 or 13 hours straight through. Just to come and speak. Why? Because when he tried to, to board a plane, he was told, sorry, man, you're on a no fly list. some people may say, well, now, Brian, he has history with the government. And I would agree. Yes. Yes. He and his family have some very serious history, none of which resulted in a conviction of any kind. He's a free man. He should be 100 percent in good standing. And yet here he was being denied the opportunity to fly. I believe this came up later when he went to purchase a firearm and was told, nope, you've been listed as a prohibited person. This is a really bad idea. When we come back, I've got an article here from Hannah Cox from the Foundation for Economic Education that spells out why this is such a terrible idea and why we should not be encouraging more of it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. This is an article from Hannah Cox on uh, the Foundation for Economic Education website, fee.org. In the wake of that incident last week, the FBI is considering placing those who allegedly participated in the uh, riot on a federal no-fly list. Numerous political figures have thrown their support behind the idea, including Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who's poised to take over as the chamber's majority leader in the coming weeks. Schumer said we cannot allow these insurrectionists. This is this is his words, by the way. We cannot allow these insurrectionists. Sorry, my computer just took a nice jump here to get on a plane and cause more violence and more damage. Two members of the House Homeland Security issue, one Democrat and one Republican, actually wrote a letter to Transportation Security Agency Administrator David Pekoski stating little is being done to disrupt the travel of terrorists who just attacked the seat of the U.S. government and wish to do so again. They went on to express concern that many of the same groups that planned and carried out Wednesday's attack intend to return to Washington, D.C. to cause further disruption and violence in the coming days, including at the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Now, Hannah Cox points out with the inauguration right around the corner and numerous threats of attacks on state capitals filling the airways, it's understandable that some would seek to prevent future violence by limiting the movements of those they suspect to be a threat. And while those advocating for expanding the no-fly list may have good intentions, she says this could threaten civil liberties in the long run. Look, th- this is one of those things where uh, I know there are people, hey, for the sake of safety, we'd rather, you know, prevent something bad from happening than wait till it happens. But for government to operate as it's supposed to operate, in other words, to protect the people, if they're going to investigate somebody, if they're going to put somebody on a no-fly list, due process is a must-must. You cannot cut this corner and have a just government. Instead, you will see you'll see these kind of restrictions being used purely for political, punitive, petty reasons. Now, if you don't remember, no fly lists were implemented in the wake of 9-11. This is before the TSA was ever created. And the first list was given to the Federal Aviation Administration by the FBI. It contained 125 names. Since its formation, the TSA has administered this list. Anytime you check in for a flight, your information is run against the TSA's secure flight database to determine whether you will be allowed to fly. From the very beginning, the no-fly list has been shrouded in secrecy and administered without oversight, due process, or checks and balances. And you wonder why people hate going to the airport. This is why. How many people are on the list? What qualifies a person for inclusion? We don't know the answers to these very basic questions because the information is classified and it's labeled as sensitive security information. Now, a lot of innocent people have ended up on the no fly list, including the late Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, Representative John Lewis, well known singer Cat Stevens, whose name is Yusuf Islam, once found himself on that list. The mother of an 18 month old child was once informed upon arrival at the airport that her daughter had been placed on the list. That incident by the way was later blamed on a glitch by JetBlue, but there have been multiple other reports of kids under the age of 10 being similarly delayed. In another instance, the FBI placed three Muslim men on the no-fly list in an attempt to coerce them into becoming informants. Muhammad Tanvir, a uh, Tanvir, a long haul, a former long haul truck driver, has never been arrested. Never charged with a crime, but they added him to the list along with two others after repeatedly refusing to become an informant for the FBI, a role which he said would violate his religious beliefs. After being placed on the list, list, he was forced to quit his job as he was no longer able to fly home after making deliveries. He's also been unable to go visit his ailing mother in Pakistan. Now, a pending lawsuit's been filed on the matter, but that story's just one example of the dysfunction and injustice that has plagued the no-fly list since its inception. Any government system is ripe for fraud, abuse, and error. And those systems are run by humans. We know that humans are fallible. Hannah Cox reminds us it is for this reason our government was designed to ensure individuals had access to due process and representation before their rights could be removed. That's also why the Constitution institutes numerous checks and balances on the power of leaders to take away our rights. And she says, make no mistake, freedom of movement is an essential natural right. As Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nature- Nations, there must be free movement for all in the system so that each man might, might seek the best opportunity for his labor or resources. Even with due process in our systems of checks and balances, Hannah Cox reminds us that we've discovered thousands of wrongful convictions in our justice system. And we find more every year. It's unthinkable that the FBI has the unilateral as well as opaque power to restrict movement rights without due process. She says removing essential rights without a conviction will not only mean the government will inevitably wrong innocent people, but it also means aggrieved citizens have few avenues to get their rights back. Without a conviction, representation, or even an explanation as to why they've been placed on such a list, individuals have little resource to correct errors, prove their innocence, or earn their rights back. She says we can agree that those responsible for the attack on the Capitol should be apprehended and held accountable for their actions. Those suspected of crime should receive a full trial where the government is required to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Then and only then... Should it be possible for an individual to be placed on the no-fly list? Amen. She's right. And I think one of the hardest things we're having right now is, is to convince people who either are lukewarm or maybe just, you know, maybe the people you see this being applied against, you're like, good. I don't like Trump supporters. I want to see them suffer. But I'm telling you, if you have that attitude... You're overlooking the all-important fact that if if you're willing to stomach it being done to others and not say, hey, that's wrong. Government shouldn't be doing that. It will happen to you eventually. What you allow government to do to others, it will revisit on you. So you don't give it powers that you don't want to see abused. By the way, there's a there's a link in the show notes today. And this is going to be kind of the added bonus i guess uh, there's often stories that i don't get to this one i 'm deliberately not sharing on the air it 's a satirical piece writer by the name of C. J. Hopkins who asks, "Are you ready for total ideological war it's satire and and i'm, I'm not even going i 'm not even going to tease it on the air it would it would be like uh, it'd be like trying to act out uh, you know how South Park satirizes? This is, this is sharp. <laughs> it's, it's sharp, but it's, but it's not, uh, I don't know. It's, it's right on the money. It's what good satire is supposed to be. The ability to say something uh, that the common man needs to say, but the people in power do not want you to say. All right, one final thing here I just want to recommend in the couple of minutes we have left. I don't know how serious you are about owning your worldview, and, and most of us don't have the luxury of a lot of time to sit and research and well, think things over and, you know, uh, sit down and discuss it with other great notable minds. You know, I know it would be really nice if we could do more of that. But if you're very serious, though, about really knowing what you know, in other words, paying the price to know about something. There's a link that I'm sharing, which is a pandemic reading list for left, right, and libertarians. This is from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And I want you to know, he's not trying to convince you that there's only one way to see this. But he has some recommended reading that should help uh, promote broader understanding of just what happened with the advent of COVID and whether the responses that were undertaken were helpful or harmful. And he talks about his own path of trying to, to get uh, his mind around pandemic policy response. He's been writing on it for some time, but he really wanted to know what does it take? What, what's involved when you have a pathogen making its way through the public? And so he says, these are the books that helped him the most on this intellectual journey. The History of Public Health by Paul Rosen. He says, this is a fascinating treatise, first published in 1958 and reissued in 1993 with new material. A wonderful introduction to the whole concept of public health and how it's evolved throughout the centuries. Also, he recommends molecular and cell biology for dummies. Now, I know, you've got you to be committed. If I'm going to learn this, I've got to really buckle down. Here's another one. Smallpox, the death of a disease, the inside story of eradicating a worldwide killer. Then he lists The Plague by Albert Camus, Coronavirus and Economic Crisis, edited by Peter C. Earle. Peter Earle is also with the American Institute for Economic Research. This is not about, uh, you know, boning up on all of these arguments so that you can win whatever, you know, discussion you're in. This is about knowing what you're talking about. As Jeffrey Tucker says at this point, ignorance threatens everything we hold dear. We owe the cause of freedom some effort on our part to read up, learn, and be prepared for the long battle ahead. You'll find it in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.